And um, I said uh, then it was a two-weeker. And uh, last week we looked at um, God's love for us, didn't we? Do you remember that? Yeah, Yeah, we looked at God's love for us. And uh, we saw that Jesus loved his disciples. And he created an atmosphere of of love for them. Uh, as they were kind of growing up, as it were, of of disciples. And uh, we also saw that that was the atmosphere that God wanted to create for you. Uh, If you are a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, he wants to create an atmosphere that you know that you're loved, deeply, passionately loved by God. And um, we also then went on to focus on the cross Do you remember that? We focus on the cross. The cross, of course, of Christ is the greatest demonstration of God's love to you. There is no greater, more powerful demonstration of how he feels about you than Jesus going to the cross. And uh, uh, I hope that looking at that last week convinced you. I'm I'm hoping that it just took you along the journey and uh, convinced you a lot, actually, Uh, And that somehow this knowledge that you are loved has dropped a little bit deeper into your hearts. Because we're all good at keeping things in our heads, but not actually allowing it to affect us. So uh, I I was really praying that it would affect you. Um, And uh, we're going to carry on looking at the whole subject of love this morning. And I'd just like to pray before we do that. So, So Father, we come again to you and ask Holy Spirit that you would come freshly this morning. I want to ask you, Holy Spirit, that as I just do what I do, Father, more importantly, you will come. And that you will convince people, not only that they are loved, but Lord, you'll begin to shape them, Lord, to be lovers of other people. I want to ask you, Holy Spirit, for your words to come and to to convince people that this is the way to live. To receive your love, but also now to love others. Father, I cannot do that, but you can. So I'm asking, Father, would you come powerfully on every heart here in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Okay. So as I said uh, last week, when we began to uh, look at this uh, subject, and it's all part of our discipleship series, we were going to look at this. Disciples love Now, uh, what I'm going to do this morning as well is, uh, Jesus was very clear about this. We are commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, aren't we? And to love our neighbor as ourselves. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus on the second of those two, okay? Uh, This doesn't in any way mean the other one is somehow unimportant, Uh, quite the contrary. It's the first thing that Jesus said. So we are commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But today, I want to focus particularly on us loving others, other people, okay? That, that is a whole other sermon in its, um, uh, in, in its own right. So I've been thinking, well, how am I going to start this? Where am I going to start? And I'm going to start in a slightly unusual place, okay? So I'd, I'd like us to have a quick look at the 12 disciples, Because it strikes me, when you you begin to read about the 12 disciples and you see some of the art that's occurred over the years, that the view of the 12 disciples is very unrealistic. Have you seen some of the masters when they, you know, the, 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 you know the, the, from hundreds of years ago, and they paint these disciples in slightly effeminate poses? 
And you think, those aren't the disciples I read about. You know, these are tough fishermen. These are tax collectors who are hated, who would have been used to being attacked. But somehow they're portrayed as these unreal people, aren't they? Who are kind of hover above the earth. And you think, they have no problems and they just were amazing for God. And you think, no, 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 this isn't right at all. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to have a look at some of these characters and we're just going to see what they look like and what kind of dynamic was going on potentially between these 12 when they were gathered. Okay, so the first guy we're going to have a look at is Matthew or Levi as he's also known and he was a tax collector and we know what the Jewish people thought about tax collectors, don't we? They were loathed and hated with a passion and a vengeance. So um, immediately, <coughs> Matthew was introduced by Jesus to the rest of the group. Hi, guys. Got a new member of the team. Oh, good. His name's Matthew. Good, good, good Jewish name. Lovely. Thank you, Levi. Yes, he was a tax collector. I reckon there would have been a reaction at that point. Because tax collectors would have been seen as slimy, self-serving, profiteering robbers who ripped off the poor to feather their own nests. He would have also been seen as a traitor to the nation because he's sustaining the Roman Empire by, by gathering taxes for them. And of course, uh, the Jews believed, no, the, the Jewish people should run their own nation and not be run by a Gentile nation. And here is Matthew supporting the, the Romans by gathering taxes for them. Ah, oh, yeah, welcome in Matthew. Thanks a lot. So there's, I reckon there's a bit of a ripple when he's introduced to the other, the other guys. No one would have liked this man on principle. He has got a hurdle to get over. And that's not a welcome you want, but that's the welcome I think he would have received. Who else have we got? Well, we've got Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots today we would call terrorists. And the Zealots were a group of people who were determined to get the Romans out of Israel. They had conquered Israel in the first century, and they were determined to get them out by force. And what the Zealots would constantly do is they would constantly cause um, um, insurrections to occur. So there was constant violence just popping out here and there because the Zealots had got together. They had agitated a situation. There would be... uh, violence that would occur, the Romans would then come and suppress it, and they'd all get kicked off into prison. So the the zealots were agitators, and if Simon is true to form, he would have been an agitator, and he would probably be someone who would make you feel quite guilty if you weren't agreeing with him, because he'd be saying, why aren't you taking up arms against the Romans? Why don't you do it? Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, you should do. Kind of that kind of character. We've all met characters like that, haven't you? If you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. So it's possible even that this guy could have taken life. He could be a murderer, or at least been party to it. He had no problem with the idea of killing someone to get them out so that, that Israel could be free of the Romans. That was not a problem to him. So it's an interesting combination, Matthew and Simon. See, Simon would look at Matthew and think, you're the kind of traitor I want dead. 
And now these 12 have got to tour the nation together. I wonder if they ever had to share a room together. <laughs> Sweet dreams, Matthew. Do you think you're going to wake up? Can I, can I change rooms, please? Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. On paper, anyway, we look at these two people. Man, they are polar opposites. But Jesus, the Son of God, has brought them together in his team. So who else have we got, then, that adds to this mix of people? Well, we've got Thomas. Thomas. This guy was incredibly negative. Just incredibly negative. And he's called Doubting Thomas because he was full of doubt. But he was the cynical voice amongst them. I said to you before, I'm not sure how he got into the twelve. I mean, there were times when he just utterly disagreed with Jesus. There was the time when they were going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus said, come, we're going to raise our friend from the dead. And Thomas just says, if we go there, we'll die. You're wrong. So I don't know what we're doing this. I'll go along. But, but you just, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. So he is the guy that would constantly be injecting doubt and cynicism Probably fear as well. He is that dripping tap. He's the kind of person that after a bit you'd be saying, oh, just shut up. Can you just not, just go away. So here's the character. That's what's being injected by this man. So can we get any lower than that? Well, yes, we can. Judas Iscariot. Here is the man. He is going to betray Jesus. And we also know he was a thief, and he looked after the money for the disciples, and he was helping himself. Now, you know what it's like when you've had a long day on the road. Right, have we got enough money for an inn and a meal? Yes, we have. Oh, no, we haven't. Oh, I'm sure we had enough money for the... Where's... Oh, so it's a night in the open again, then, is it? Money was being bled away by this man. And actually, if there had even been a hint of this, there would have been suspicion and accusation going on. Where's the money going? I thought we had more money than that. Can we not afford on that? I thought, I'm sure yesterday we had more than that. And of course it's going. So that's the kind of atmosphere Judas is probably introducing into the 12. Who else have we got? Well, we've got Peter. Well, Peter is a guy who who acts before he thinks. And you know what it's like being around someone who acts before they think? It makes you tense, doesn't it? Because you're thinking, what is he going to do? What am I going to have to I'm going to have to sit on his head again to keep this guy quiet. Oh, no. What's Peter going to say? He's going to get us into trouble. So I'm now tense because he's around. Foot in mouth. Who else have we got? Well, we've got John. Well, the thing about John is that John gets on very well with Jesus. There's just natural chemistry between Jesus and John. These two guys are mates. They just like each other. And um, they, uh, they, they get on. And then, but John, I think, plays to this a bit. When he writes in his own gospel, he describes himself without using his name, but he describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. You think, that's, I don't think that's helpful, John, really, to be honest. I mean, it's a bit kind of, I am the disciple that Jesus loves, 
I mean, I don't know who you are, but I obviously, I take the first slot. I am right up there. You are a bit further down, really. I don't want to say I'm superior, but, you know, I am. <laughs> it's sort of what comes off this, guys. And, you know, when, when two people are friends, and, and, it's, and this is Jesus, the Son of God, you can't, there's, there's room for envy here. There's room for jealousy, isn't there? In fact, at times, there's just a time when Peter speaks to Jesus about John. He said, what about, what about him? And Peter, Jesus just says, don't worry about him. I'll deal with him. You, what about you? There's just a, a, just a taste of there. Potentially, Peter was a bit envious. What, what, don't worry about him. And then there were other times, of course, when Jesus just took three of them, Peter, James, and John, into certain situations and left the others behind. So Peter, James, and John saw the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Man, wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? Wouldn't you have liked to have been included in that? What did they say when they went back? We had, you'll never guess what we've seen. We have seen the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Oh, yeah, you weren't included, were you? No, I wasn't. Uh, what's all that about? Peter, James, and John were the three that were taken up the mountain. They saw the, the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw something of his glory. Uh, you, know, you weren't included in that, of course, were you? No. We were. Three of us. We got it. We saw all that. Man, you know, there's opportunity here for plenty of tension to float around. And then just, just to throw this in, um, res- doing some research into Bartholomew, I don't know very much about, but apparently he is thought to have been of noble birth, royal blood. So it's a posh boy in the midst. One posh boy in, the, in this little group. Wow. So there's tension all over the place with these 12. And sometimes, you know, this tension bursts out. Have you, have you noticed that? So there were arguments sometimes. And they, the Bible says at one point they start to argue about who is the greatest. <laughs> So basically what they're saying is, my miracles are better than your miracles. I am greater than what you is. It's what they're saying. I am better. I am superior to you. I mean, you should see my miracles. Your miracles are all right, but they're sort of average. My miracles, I think you'll find, make me greater than you. I mean, they're actually having this full-on argument as they're walking along. Wow, so they're scrabbling for the biggest reputation. Then there's another occasion when James and John make a grab for power. Have you seen that? That bit when they, and, and they decide, right, how can, we, how can we you know, get a special place in Jesus' kingdom? And they have a think about it. And very bravely, they send their mum in. And um, so mum goes to have a word with Jesus, Zebedee's wife. She goes to have a word with Jesus. And she says, look, Jesus... Can my boys have a special place in your kingdom? Can they sit one on the right and one on the left when you come into your kingdom? And uh, when the, the others hear about this, they were really irritated. The Bible says that. They were, the other ten were like, who are you to try and get a place over us? What, what makes you so special? And what I'm saying is these are a real group of people. They are are real, and they've got real tensions. Like any group of people, like us, I might say, put us together. You're going to have different political persuasions. You you vote for who? Oh, well, you can't be a Christian. 
People say that kind of stuff, don't they? Oh, all sorts of tensions floating around. So that's how they were living. They were arguing, they were fighting, they were thinking about themselves for most of their time with Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, was loving them. And then towards the end of Jesus' time, we think he was on earth for about uh, ministry for about three and a half years. Towards the end of that time, Jesus says something to them. He says this. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This radical command to love comes in at this stage in the ministry between these squabbling guys. Now, I've been thinking about this. Why is this new? Why is this new? See, Jesus was talking uh, a little while ago to a, a scribe, a religious bloke, and the scribe said, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and he says, well, uh, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Jesus has already said, what does the Bible say? It says to love one another. So why is it new? Why is this new? Well, it could be, I guess, that what Jesus has said is, look, I've taught you to love. I've given you a model of love. Now I want you to pick up my model of love and love other people like that. So it could be new in that, potentially. It could be new in that what Jesus has done here has given a very specific command to believers to Christians to love one another. So take a look around, all these people. Jesus commands you to love them. You are to love one another. It could be that. But I wonder if it's new for this reason. It's just new to them. It's just new to them because they haven't been living like this. And Jesus thinks... I'm going to have to say something that's going to hit them like it's brand new. Guys, I've got this revolutionary, I mean, it was said 2,000 years ago, but it's going to come revolutionary to you. I want you to love one another. And the kind of the look of wonder on their face. Well, we, we know that. And we are doing that, Jesus. <laughs> are you? The other thing I just want to say here is, please note, it's a commandment. A new commandment. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then there is a command that Jesus gives you to love one another. This is not a suggestion. He's not saying, well, if you wouldn't mind. He's saying, if you want to follow me, then you will love one another. There are some lines in the sand that we cannot avoid. It's like forgiveness. Jesus didn't give us an option on forgiveness. Matthew 18 is very clear. If, you know, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you'll take on the nature of God. What is the nature of God? He forgives people. Therefore, when somebody cuts across you, you forgive them. 
And here he is talking about this new commandment. I, I wonder if in the life of a disciple, every disciple of Jesus, there is a decision to be made. And I wonder if it's the decision is this. Will you stop living for yourself? Living for your own advantage? Stop being jealous and resentful of others. And instead start loving people. I think there is a conscious decision we need to make. We've got to say, yeah, I'm going to start living like that. See, I think this day when Jesus, this is the time of the Last Supper, Jesus has decided this is the day for his 12. He's been seeing how they've been treating each other, how they've been fighting each other and trying to get advantage over each other. He's been loving them. But he's eventually got to that point where he said, right, today is the day when I'm saying to you, you need to make a decision about the way you're going to live. How are you going to live? And it means that instead of just focusing on me and my gifting and how well I'm doing and whether I'm recognized, am I thanked enough, instead I'm going to start to lift you up. I'm going to start to delight in you and your success as much as my own. How well you do matters to me. Now this doesn't mean you start ignoring yourself. You continue to love yourself, but we just love others as much as we love ourselves. So don't put yourself down, because then you'll, you'll love others lower. No, we love ourselves. You continue to matter, because you're loved by God. But we love others as much as we love ourselves. This is what the Bible says. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. That's uh, protects, really, that means. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So love... The love you and I need to demonstrate looks like this. Being patient. Even when someone's a total plonker. And you think, why have they done that? To love them means I am patient with you. Even when they've done it for the third time, fourth time, fifth time. You think. Love is kind. When you're kind to someone, you demonstrate the love of God. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude, even to traffic wardens. <laughs> I'd only step, stop there for one minute. One minute I'd stop there. Could you not just keep, show me a little bit of grace for one minute? I know it's a double line, but I wasn't... wasn't st- Do not be rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Man, that's a tough one. How do you not be irritable? I'm British, Lord. That is my right. (laughs) It's not irritable. 
or resentful. Doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth. That's what we're commanded to do. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Then that's what we're going for. And we need to treat each other like that. I think a first priority, let's treat the people in this church like that. So, I think we could look at that. We could say, well, okay, I now officially feel overwhelmed. How on earth do I do that? Well, this is what Romans 5 says. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Can I say, you have the capacity to love like this. This is not beyond you and me. It's not. Because it's the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into us. We receive the love of God. Therefore, we can now give the love of God. We saw that last week, didn't we? We receive the love of God. We give the love of God. That's the way love works in the kingdom. Of, in the kingdom. You, have, you have the mechanism. When you became a Christian, the Bible says this. You became a new creation. You became, something happened in you. When you become a Christian, something physically happens in you and you you get some new mechanism. You become a new person in Christ, it says. And it enables you to live differently to the way you lived before. Not without some trial and error, I would suggest. That's my experience. But we have the mechanism to love in the way that Jesus has commanded us. He would not have asked us to do something that we could not do. It is possible. However, there are a few things we've just got to keep in mind. Jude 1 says this, keep yourself in the love of God. So there's some intentionality to this. We need to keep ourselves on track when it comes to loving. And we can easily be uh, blown off course. Uh, 2 Timothy talks about people becoming lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those are the things that will try and distract us. We will want to love ourselves, we'll want to love money, and we'll want to love pleasure. I really get that. Do you get that? But instead, instead of loving God, we'll love those things. Make sure you're loving the right thing. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. Love the right thing. Don't love the wrong thing. It's easily done. This is what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Sometimes there are tough words in Scripture, and I've got to show them to you. That's a tough one. Don't allow the love of the world to replace the love of the Father. So in other words, keep the fight honest. Okay. Uh, So, we saw from this scripture, keep yourself in the love of God. There's some personal responsibility that we need to take when it comes to keeping ourselves in love. That's something I personally, you personally have to do. This one indicates there's some corporate responsibility as well. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So one of the jobs we have to do then, as a corporate group of people, is we have to provoke one another to love each other. Hello? Yeah, good. 
Sometimes you go very quiet and it's unnerving, okay? I just want you to know. Yeah, so there's some corporate responsibility. Stir one another up. That's part of my job. It's part of your job. How do you, question, how do you stir the other people in this church up to love and good works? Something for you to think about this week. How do you do it? Uh, I just put these in as well because it's pretty obvious from this one, Philippians 1. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So um, when Paul is talking about this, he's talking about the love that this church has. But he's saying, how do you make it bigger? How do we start? We'll start here, but we're going to get bigger. How do we get bigger in our love? And interestingly, he throws in there, with all knowledge and discernment. Because sometimes with love, you really do need some wisdom. Because what is love sometimes? Sometimes saying to someone, no, you can't have that, is love. So we've got this thing of knowledge and discernment accompanying love. Love is not just a cuddly feeling. We can, in Seven Oaks, we equate love with being nice. Nice is not a biblical word. Loving, it's good to be nice, though. don't get me wrong. But we need to be wise with love. One of my jobs as, a, as an elder is to guard the gate. That means there are people that I will say, no, you can't come in to. And I'm commanded to do that. And as I do that, I love you. As Malcolm does that, isn't it? So here's the, uh, the last one, pursue love. So again, there's, there's an, acti- an activeness about loving. How do we pursue love? How do we pursue it? question for you. How do you pursue love? Something to think about this week. So Jesus says that if we learn to love in the way that he's command, it has revolutionary power. Love has revolutionary power. Look at the last sentence here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love screams a message. It says, I belong to Jesus. It talks, it, it just is an advert for him. <clears throat> it's meant to be such a distinctive mark that people will be able to tell you are disciples of Jesus. Just lastly, I want to finish with this. Jesus is absolutely revolutionary when it comes to love. Because he tells us to, to love three different categories of people. You're to love each other. That's the church. You're to love others. Well, that's pretty much everyone else. And then he says this. You're to love your enemies. So the people that hate you, Christians, you are to love I looked at that there and I shouted when I read that the other day. Well, how on earth do you do that then, God? We're to love our enemies. Now, why are we to love our enemies? That's kind of stupid. <laughs> well, we're to love our enemies because God, the Bible says, loves everybody. And when, when you encounter God, you encounter love. And we are taking on his shape and his size. That's what we're doing as disciples. We're becoming more like him. Well, what's he like? Well, he's good, and he says he's good to the evil and to the good. Because that's his heart. And when people encounter us, 
even if they hate us, our reaction is we're going to have to love them. Doesn't mean we're always nice to them, of course. But it does mean we are commanded to love them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have spoken some very clear things about love and you have commanded us to love one another. Lord, I want to ask you that you'd help us to get to that point where we make that decision. We're not going to live for ourselves first anymore, but we're going to love others just like we love ourselves. I want to ask you, Father, this would be a church full of people that are committed to loving each other. I want to ask you to help us, Father, as we now push forward and as we pursue this and as we think about this over the next week. I ask you that something will drop in terms of our understanding. I pray that uh, attitudes will change. I pray that people will begin to love and express love like they have never done it before. Jesus, we are after you. We are after being your disciples. And we recognize, therefore, there is a command that rests on our shoulders that we to love one another. Father, will you help us now to do that? Holy Spirit, would you come freshly? Would you fill our hearts full of the love of God that we could give away this love that you have given to us? Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.